0: what does it mean to be a christian man the most popular book on christian masculinity probably still the all-time most popular book was john Eldridge's wild at heart
1: yeah
0: in my american history course i had uh, taught a unit on teddy roosevelt and how questions of gender and power were connected with Christian nationalism and with imperial conquest and with white supremacy. And John Aldridge loves Teddy Roosevelt. I read Wild at Heart and it was uncanny, the similarities between kind of what I just talked about the dynamics of gender and power and nation in early 20th century. And what I was reading that book and I started to to look around me and this was the, the time of the Iraq war and we were seeing white evangelicals coming out as very pro-war, pro-preemptive war. They were condoning the use of torture, extremely anti-Muslim. And I started to kind of hold these things together and explore how their patriarchal gender ideals might be linked with our ideas about foreign policy. And I, I just started playing around with this and doing more and more research. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the nonpartisan evangelical podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed.
1: What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to... To, uh, to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb And calling yourself a Christian.
0: Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com.
1: All right. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Glad to be with you, Paul Swearench. It's still pretty much sheltering in place, but I did go out and eat the other day for the first time with a friend for lunch, and it was a crazy, surreal experience and still trying to figure out what going out looks like and all of that stuff. So I hope you're safe. Cases are going up like crazy. Texas, I read today, is is filling up in Dallas with their ICUs. Florida, even the Republican governor of Florida is saying, hey, if people don't start wearing masks, we're going to have to crack down. So it's real. People just care for one another. That's all we have to do. It's okay. We need to open up. I'm there. but We got to do it smart or we're going to pay the price. Again, So that's my sermon to start us off today. And now I want to introduce a great guest we have with us today as we're recording on the 23rd of June. She has a new book out just today, and it's Kristen Kobus-Dumay. She's a professor, professor of hist- history and gender studies at Calvin University. And the new book is Jesus and John Wayne. Get ready for it. The subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith, and Fractured a Nation. Kristen, I probably just lost a whole bunch of listeners to the podcast right there with the title.
0: Yes, well, stick with us, stick with us. We'll we'll try to make the case.
1: (laughs) So tell me about the book. How did you come about writing a book called Jesus and John Wayne, and what do Jesus and John Wayne have to do with each other?
0: Oh, that's really the question. What do Jesus and John Wayne have to do with each other? So this book actually goes back many, many years, to probably 15 years ago when I first started teaching at Calvin University. It's a a Christian university. And Some of my students introduced me to the literature that's kind of at the heart of of this book, and that is popular evangelical literature on masculinity, on Christian manhood. What does it mean to be a Christian man? And at that point in time, so this will date me just a little bit, the most popular book on Christian masculinity, probably still the all-time most popular book, was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Yeah. And and they thought I needed to read the book because they were in my American history course where I had uh, taught a unit on Teddy Roosevelt and how questions of gender and power were connected with Christian nationalism and with imperial conquests and with white supremacy. And, and they said, okay, Professor Dumais, you really need to read this book because John Aldridge loves Teddy Roosevelt. And so I, I, I read the book, I read Wild at Heart and they were right. And it was uncanny the similarities between kind of what I just taught them about the dynamics of gender and power and nation in early 20th century and And what I was reading that book, and then I started to to look around me, and this was the the time of the Iraq war. And we were seeing white evangelicals coming out as you know, very pro-war, pro-preemptive war. They were condoning the use of torture, extremely anti-Muslim. And I started to kind of hold these things together and explore how their patriarchal gender ideals might be linked with their ideals or ideas about foreign policy. And I, I just started playing around with this and doing more and more research and talking to people. And then I kind of set it aside for a time because life got busy. I was writing other other books and and projects, and and then I kind of dusted it all off in the fall of 2016.
1: It's interesting, and I, when I was reading about you, I, when I first saw the title of your book, I thought about that book, Wild at Heart. I remember being handed that as a as a young father of a, of a of two children my youngest a son and if you're a father of a son you have to read this book and i remember reading the book and thinking this isn't me and i'm i'm just not the take my son out in the woods and shoot things guy and and that somehow that made me less christian or less of a jesus following man uh just didn't That didn't line up. I I I never have quite figured out where we even came up with this idea that Jesus was some gun-toting Second Amendment-loving guy. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, so that's, that's exactly it. So Eldridge's model of Christian manhood was a very aggressive masculinity, uh, a warrior masculinity. So God is a warrior God and men are made in God's image and, you know, they are made to be aggressive. And this is how, how God designed men. It's the blueprint so that they can defend, you know, the church and their families and the nation. And it was this very rugged ideal and it was very popular at the time, but you are not at all alone. I have talked with so many white evangelical men who felt like exactly what you said if they couldn't live up to this ideal and really, I mean very few men kind of can. Uh, then they felt like second class men and second class Christians, really, that they were always coming up short. And what I what struck me when I first read Aldridge and I kept coming back to was for all their talk of biblical, Uh, manhood and biblical gender roles. There weren't a ton of Bible verses in these books on Christian masculinity that I was reading, and those that were were kind of just sprinkled, you know, decontextualized, but they loved looking to secular heroes, to these mythical warriors, to uh, Eldridge's favorite was Mel Gibson's William Wallace, right? Yeah. And the movie Braveheart. But I mean, he had a whole cast of characters. So from kind of real historical mythical figures like Teddy Roosevelt and General Patton and General MacArthur to just, you know, these mythical uh, warriors. But the more I started reading these books, the more I saw, yes, they all love Mel Gibson's William Wallace, but John Wayne just kept popping up again and again as the icon of Christian manhood. And if you know anything about John Wayne, uh, it, that was puzzling. And that's kind of what I was trying to explore here. And what I came to see was that one of the reasons that they loved these kind of secular and mythical models of masculinity and seemed to pervert them to drawing on Christian heroes and very devout Christian men as models of of Christian manhood, as you might expect them to do, was because they embraced such a militant ideal that it was actually men who were unencumbered by traditional Christian virtues, like, you know, say the fruits of the spirit, you know, love and joy and gentleness and self-control and patience, right? These men who would be constrained by those virtues are not particularly militant men. And so they, they actually drew on these secular heroes to really exemplify what they were labeling as Christian manhood.
1: Wow. And so I'm assuming that that you had talked about how this tied into our beliefs in foreign policy and when you talk about that John Wayne unconstrained, then that, that probably ties into the support of our current president. Sorry, my dog is joining the podcast here a little bit, <laughs> by the way. But yeah, so that, that has to do a, li- a little bit, I would think, in your research of why we are followers of Donald Trump as a, as a rule in the evangelical, the white evangelical church.
0: Well, that's, that's exactly what I saw. So in the fall of 2016, at the time, I was actually working on a project on the religious history of Hillary Clinton. So I was watching the election extremely closely, particularly white evangelicals, but from kind of the other side and trying to understand, you know, why they hated Hillary Clinton so much. And so I remember the, you know, the release of the Access Hollywood tape where we have you know, Donald Trump on camera talking in very crass terms about sexually assaulting women. And the big question of the hour was, are white evangelicals going to break with Trump? And we saw a few waver very briefly. We saw those who had already come out against him and express their reservations, women like Beth Moore, for example, who came out even more strongly against him, but the vast majority did not waver. They dug in their heels. And it was at that moment that it all kind of clicked for me. And I thought, you know, I've seen this before and I think I I know what's going to happen. And still, I I was not fully prepared for, (laughs) for what has unfolded in the last four years. But yes, what we see with Donald Trump is very much these same traits. And and when you listen to how so many evangelicals defend their support for Trump, it's that he is a strong man and that he, you know, there's kind of this admiration for his willingness to flout conventional, you know, well, political correctness, if you will, just conventional norms of civility, because he is going to fight for them. He is going to fight for, he says that he will very explicitly, I will fight for Christians. I will fight for you. And, you know, he, he's the kind of guy they want on their side, this very militant defender protector who will not be restrained by normal conventions by civility, by Christian virtue, he can be ruthless. And for him, as for their heroes that they celebrate, the ends will justify the means. And when that kind of clicked for me, so many other things fell into place. I I began to see how this narrative that evangelicals were hypocrites or that they betrayed their values to vote for Donald Trump, I don't think does justice to the level of support and to the deep affinities between uh, conservative white evangelicalism and some of their gender ideals, and really embrace of militancy, and their embrace of, of Donald Trump.
1: Wow, that's, so even the, him speaking openly about sexually assaulting a woman almost fits into the narrative. It almost makes him more attractive, because that ability to conquer and take what you what you want and what you think is right is is all the more attractive, perhaps.
0: Right. Right. So, I mean, few evangelicals were going to come out and say, you know, we endorse that kind of language or right. we endorse the sexual assault of women. However, if you look at evangelical churches and institutions, it, it's I actually have a chapter. The last chapter in the book is on patterns of sexual abuse within evangelical communities, the inability of so many evangelicals to name abuse, to uh, properly blame perpetrators instead of blaming victims. There's a long-standing tradition within white evangelicalism of holding women accountable. They weren't modest enough. They somehow tempted men. And their model of masculinity is one in which God has filled men with testosterone. Again, that makes them aggressive, really good warriors. But You also can't really expect these testosterone filled men to restrain themselves and that includes sexually. So it's really all on the women to make sure that they do not tempt men who are not their husbands and for wives to make absolutely sure that they fulfill their husband's every sexual need so that they are not tempted to go astray by other women. And so uh, once you start taking a careful look at these repeated patterns of sexual abuse and particularly the responses within evangelical communities to abuse, uh, you can start to see that, yes, even their support for Trump with all of his misogyny and and really violence against women, there's a place for that. And there's a way to kind of explain that away, not necessarily to condone it, but to understand that, you know, real men, uh, as, as I, I've said before, kind of come, come with certain side effects. <laughs>
1: that's, a, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, and. And so then it, it like it does, it plays into these gender roles. It makes women not only sexual beings and, and, you know, defined by their sexuality as I've heard some women when they were young girls in the purity movement, what the purity movement told them is, is exactly what he said. You are a temptation to the boys around you. Mm-hmm. And, and in essence, being told their, their very appearance was a negative and and then, of course, how does that play into women in leadership and, and all of these other things? It has to have a big impact on how we view all of those things.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, really what this is, is doing is just looking at evangelical faith and culture, really this culture of evangelicalism, purity culture. I looked at uh, sexual advice uh, manuals dating back to the 1960s, and there were... I mean, these these things were bestsellers, and in part because in the nineteen sixties, right, with the sexual revolution, Christians, conservative Christians, didn't want that kind of liberation. However, with this model of masculinity that was gaining in popularity, again, it was it was the duty of a Christian wife to to fulfill her husband's many sexual needs. But the problem was these women had been raised to be extremely modest, mm-hmm. and so that was a real problem. You, know, you have the wedding night, and then all of a sudden she's supposed to completely transform, and that wasn't going so well. And so there was this market for advice manuals for how to sexually please your husband. And some of these sold millions of copies. And, and yes, very much it is on the woman to to meet his needs. And and part of that was, well, it was to prop up his, his masculine ego, which was important for a well-ordered home. But what was really interesting to me was even these sex manuals often linked this, the importance of meeting his sexual needs and kind of putting back together his ego with how that was needed for leadership at the national level and to have strong men who would fight for the nation as well. So again, what happens in the bedroom has repercussions in terms of protecting Christian America. And, mm-hmm. and it was really startling how, you know, you don't have to look hard and you have to bring any theory to this to discover these patterns. They're very blunt about what this looks like and about this connection between sexuality, gender, power, and Christian nationalism.
1: Yeah, and we tout this thing, you know, Vice President Pence won't meet with a woman one-on-one. Uh, Billy Graham wouldn't meet with a woman one-on-one. And so, again, it's, and, and I think, don't think what, what we don't realize is, is A, how we're objectifying the woman, and and, put, and B, putting women at a disadvantage in, in the marketplace. And for years, I've been telling my pastor friends if you can't handle being in a room one-on-one, and, and and when I was leading a church, our insurance carrier said, hey, you have to have a window in that door. I mean, you got to yeah. be smart, but it, it's ridiculous to think in today's culture, particularly where where the marketplace is that, that you can't have a one-on-one meeting with a woman and, and actually put them at, at a real disadvantage when my wife was running for office. You know, she would she would fairly frequently have some woman say you shouldn't be running for office. You're taking a man's job. You should be home with your kids. It's Mm -hmm. it is a whole thing that that we do that that gives women the message that you're just not quite the same as guys. They're supposed to be powerful. You're supposed to be submissive and supporting them. And, And so it's a really unfair view of humanity, I think.
0: Yeah. So submissive, supportive and seductive, right? I mean, that's part of, and that, if you go back to John Aldridge's book, that's where, you know, so men are naturally aggressive and women are naturally seductive. Mm. And that's kind of, you know, the, the, the basis for human society, and that's, you know, biblical gender roles. But yes, if you start to kind of take these to their logical conclusions, not even extreme conclusions, it's some really, really dangerous territory, right? Some very damaging patterns of, of thinking and acting that I think we have seen come to fruition,
1: and and a little bit of when the sexual impropriety happens or even sexual assault there's the thought of like did the woman provoke oh, yes. this is is this her fault
0: oh uh, so much of that it's really heartbreaking even when the victim is a young girl mm. a child that you will still hear that and it is just startling and you know it makes no sense unless you're working within this sort of framework and even then it's it's very hard to stomach
1: her name is Kristen Cobus dumay The book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And so when we're talking about that and how the church views women in this context, it's, I, I think it's important for us to understand kind of what you're saying, the corruption of a, of a faith here is this is, for me, this is not what Jesus came to model as a life. And then when you talk about, you, you were used the term Christian nationalism, which is a term I'm hearing a lot now, and how we've intertwined our theology and who we see Jesus as with being this, this leader of, of a takeover of a nation of, I don't know, what are we trying to do? Make our nation good enough so God will bless us? Is, is that the point of kind of this Christian nationalist idea?
0: Well, that's part of it. But part of it is assuming that we are already blessed because okay. we are American. We are God's chosen nation. You'll see it played both ways. Because we're God's co- chosen nation, we have to enforce morality, right? And that's why we can't have LGBTQ rights. Or that's why, you know, we, we have all of these things that we have to maintain a kind of, you know, the supremacy of Christian religious freedom, things like that. But but essentially, you know, Christian nationalism is, is the idea that, you know, the nation is, is fundamentally Christian and is is blessed by God, and this conflation of, of faith and nation mean that both Christianity and the American nation need to be defended, militantly defended, Because we're kind of doing God's work, right? Rather than, you know, right now we're hearing, interestingly, in the, you know, in the time of coronavirus, faith over fear, you know, just trust God. That is not what we hear in the history of Christian nationalism and in this movement that I'm talking about. There it is. uh, We have enemies. There are so many enemies. There are communists and there are feminists and then there are Muslims and there are liberals and there are secular humanists. And the fate of the nation and the fate of Christianity rests on us. So we have to defend, we have to defend the church. We have to defend Christianity and America again, by any means necessary. And that's, that's kind of the source of this militancy. So what I see is in terms of the subtitle, what I mean by corrupted a faith so I'm also a person of faith I'm a practicing Christian and and like you I see you know this is not really the, the biblical faith that that I have come to to own uh, that side you know the Bible there are all kinds of passages you can find passages that support a more militant faith but if you look at the work of Christ in particular and if you look at the gospel message and, and you look at the teachings of you know love, love your neighbor as yourself you know turn the other cheek. And if you look at the model of, of Jesus as, you know, this incarnational model of Jesus, really, you know, God emptying himself, becoming human, and and that we are supposed to take up the cross and follow Christ in this model of sacrifice and humility— That's the faith that I'm getting that, that seems corrupted here. And you will hear explicit disavowals of these teachings. So one of the the, uh, men who doesn't come off very well in this literature on evangelical masculinity is Mr. Rogers. (laughs) <laughs> right, he is this emasculated, wimpified wow. man, not what we're going for, right? You know. So the whole love your neighbor sort of thing. They will explicitly denounce this turn the other cheek. You can't teach a, a boy to be strong by telling him to turn the other cheek. And so what you see happening is this model of militant masculinity ends up transforming the faith itself, transforming their Christ. Their Christ becomes a, a warrior Christ. I mean, just look at kind of Mark Driscoll's Christ. And, and, and that's the the kind of Christ that we're supposed to follow. And, and to me, I think that really is a, a corruption of the historic Christian faith. And you'll even see, to get really theological, conversations around in conservative evangelical circles around the Trinity, the nature of the Trinity, whether it's the eternal subordination of, of Christ, again, probably too technical here, but essentially notions of, of, of how we understand the Trinity and the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have morphed in order to support male authority over women because they see them as linked. And so you have these traditional Christian teachings, historical Christian theology that is really being abandoned in order to uphold this very militant and militarized version of American Christianity. So that's really the corruption that I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. And I hear that from some of my Christian friends Of like, if the United States isn't militarily powerful, what will happen to the world? As if as if God has no ability outside of America. And where I see that tied into the Bible is I, I think the Pharisees believed the same thing about Israel, that if Israel wasn't, the economic and military power of the world the world would would go off its axis so to speak although they probably didn't understand that concept but exactly you know when they said if if jesus keeps doing what he's doing they're going to take our temple and take our country it just showed where their mindset was if we have to defend our country by defending our faith from this angry god who's going to destroy us if jews don't start acting right so it to me, it t- it ties into like you said the anti LGBTQ plus laws and you know the abortion battles, all the things we're trying to make sure God will favor our nation so we'll stay strong and thus keep the world in order as if God needs the United States to keep the world in order.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so one of the my favorite quotes in the book is actually from Rachel Den Hollander in a slightly different context, but <laughs> I like to just keep it in mind in many contexts and. And you know, she was speaking particularly, Rachel Hollander is the figure who um, was the, the first witness in the Larry Nassar sex abuse cases, but she's also a, a practicing evangelical herself. And she started mm-hmm. to call out evangelical churches for the way that they were perpetuating abuses against women and blaming victims and so on. And in her powerful testimony, she said at one point, understanding how many Christians tried to cover up abuses within their own circles in order to protect the minister, protect the gospel, protect their church. She said, Jesus does not need your protection. Jesus needs your obedience and that's it. And, and, and I love that quote. And I love it in, in, in the context in which she meant it, but I think more broadly as well for American Christians, for Christians generally, you know, we are called to be faithful and, and to model, you know, Christ and Christ's sacrifice and love as much as we can. We, we are not called to protect Jesus or to protect the gospel or even the church.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Paul. Thanks for letting me interrupt our conversation with Kristen to tell you about some cool stuff going on with the nonpartisan evangelical. One of the things we want to do is teach people to think differently and challenge their mindsets. So we want to build some videos and some training on that. And we're going to do some other really cool stuff coming up as we get closer to election and talking about a lot of things. But to support What we're doing here on an ongoing basis in the NPE community and you guys have been so great with that is we need to grow the audience and so i have a way you can help me do that i have a online social media coach and he's saying one of the things we need is a lot of subscribers on apple podcast and a lot of reviews of my novel on amazon so we're going to do a little push on that so july 22nd everybody's going to go to apple podcast and subscribe to this podcast. Now, if you've already subscribed, that's great. You don't have to do anything except tell 10 other people you know to subscribe on July 22nd. That's on a Wednesday. Then the next Wednesday, July 29th, we're all going to write a review of my novel, Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong on Amazon. Now, I have a way that you can be connected and know all the ways to do that. And you have to be on my insider's email list to do that, go to my website at nppodcast.com, put your uh, email address in that insider's list link, and then you'll get all the reminders of, hey, we're going to have a countdown five days, two days, tomorrow's the day now. Do it on July 22nd. Sign up and subscribe to Apple Podcast. July 29th. Do the thing on Amazon. So here's what I'm telling you to do: go to my website npepodcast.com, sign up for the email insiders list if you're not already on it. Then put July 22nd on your calendar. That's the day you're going to subscribe to the nonpartisan evangelical podcast on. Apple podcast and then July 29th, put on your calendar. That's the day you're going to write a review of my book, Joseph Comes to Town on Amazon. And all of those things get Amazon and Apple to start to think, Hey, something's going on here. People care about this. And then I can use that audience to go to other possible affiliations with other podcasts and start to build those relationships and expand. Our listener base, which gives me more opportunity to grow the message of the nonpartisan evangelical. So I know that sounds a little complicated. The easiest thing to do is make sure you're on my email list, and then you'll get an email instructing you what to do. July 22nd, put it on your calendar to subscribe to Apple Podcast, and July 29th on your calendar to write a review on Amazon. And all that information will be coming to you through the NPE newsletter when you sign up for our insiders list. Now, I hope that's as clear as mud to everybody. You'll be getting an email that'll tell you more about it. Just remember, July 22nd, podcast subscription. July 29th, novel review. You'll be hearing more about it as we get closer to those dates. And thank you for wanting to help spread the word and build the audience of the nonpartisan evangelical. Tell 10 friends, would you? And have them listen as well. Now, back to our discussion with Kristen Dumas, the author of Jesus and John Wayne. I guess, you know, what do you see as the danger of this all if as this continues on, and, and in 2020 here, we're going to see it very starkly as we head toward the next uh, presidential election. What, what's the danger of Christianity as a whole, and particularly white evangelicals, if we sort of continue on this, this track as you've been researching it?
0: Yeah, so there's different dangers, I guess. I mean, if you are an I don't know if you
1: made that conclusion in the book, but I guess I'm asking if you have any no, thoughts no. on that.
0: Well, there, you know, so there, if if you're an evangelical and evangelizing is important to you, then I think one danger that you might want to acknowledge would be that many people are very turned off by this form of Christianity, corruption of Christianity, if you will, especially younger folks. And it really is not a very winsome or inviting faith. And it, I think, to people with a kind of moral sense, it, it seems really quite ugly. And so, for for evangelicals again, who have long prioritized proselytizing and reaching people and bringing people into the faith, I think it's very counterproductive. As well as again, that it's that it's actually corrupting the heart of that faith. So I think there's a danger in terms of for Christians who who, who care about uh, Christianity. But I think there's a, a very serious and, and immediate danger for our country because this, this evangelical masculinity that I trace historically is, is an ideology that really celebrates authority very harsh application of authority from parents to children, husbands to wives, and government officials all the way down. And, and you see a lot of survey data that bears this out, that white evangelicals in particular tend to favor authoritarianism. And it's, it's actually a very anti-democratic movement. And part of this also is this, this idea that you know, we are battling for truth, and righteousness is on our side. God is on our side. So, you know, to get back to the John Wayne idea that the ends will justify the means. It might get ugly, but we know God is on our side and, and we, are on the, we, are, we are the good guys. And the good guys are always going to win. And the good guys ha- might have to get a little nasty here or there, but it's it's, it's all going to be fine in the end. Right. And that can just open up to so many abuses. Again, it is an anti-democratic impulse and right now I think we're seeing the effects of that in the erosion of our our governing systems, of trust, of really our, our, our democratic institutions, and, and that that is something that as a historian of American, or as, a, as, as, as somebody who studies American history, I just did not anticipate how far things would go in the last four years.
1: Mm. And, in one of my versions of the open of my podcast, I have a man named Lance Wallnow, who many know in my circles i don 't know if you know him, but I do and I have a quote from him saying, "You know you, in, in essence, you can 't call yourself a Christian if you 're not supporting Donald Trump, and so I think that that definition of Christianity by political terms is i, I don 't know if abomination is, is, a strong, is too strong a word, but I, I really do believe that 's an abomination in in, in god 's eyes. And to and is a, a driver of people leaving the church, if not leaving the faith altogether. And to me, those are the things that ultimately made Jesus flip over tables in the temple. And so, I, I think what you're saying is, I see the real danger is not only what we're doing to America, but what what we like you said, what we're doing to the gospel and and the faith itself. Exactly. I'm I'm not sure the church survives it. Ultimately, it, it did. Sorry, I don't mean to throw out that big statement and then move on from it. I, I think it is going to have lasting impact on the country and on the faith in the church. But I did want to get to, did you do much research how this all ties into conspiracy theories at all? Did You You know, we've, we've gone so deep into, into these conspiracy theories. Is there a tie between what you were looking at and that?
0: There is, I I don't dwell on that so much in the book, you know, that became a much more popular topic really in just the last few months. But certainly, if you look at the history of conservative evangelicalism, and this is something I do bring out a lot in the book, there is a long standing suspicion of the quote unquote, mainstream media. And and you can trace different sources, but you you can go back to kind of Rushduni and presuppositionalism, basically the idea that there is one truth and it's God's truth. And anybody who is outside of this, you know, uh, community with access to God's truth is not to be trusted very much as kind of us versus them mentality, which creates a lot of suspicion. And, and also what I saw is um, to tie it into masculinity and this militant masculinity, There's many cases within evangelical churches where Christian pastors would would really try to incite fear in the hearts of their followers. So Jerry Falwell Sr. in his church, Mark Driscoll is the perfect example of this in Mars Hill, but in independent fundamental Baptist movements and the homeschool culture, really across the evangelical world, you see instances of this where it's this idea, again, that, that we hold the truth, and the pastor is the authority, the arbiter of that truth, and you need to fear anybody outside of this circle. Do not trust them, because your, your salvation is at stake, the, the church is at stake, right? so much is at stake, and this, this gets into very conspiratorial thinking. There is one source of truth. And, you know, it is I, or, you know, uh, whichever, however you want to define that and do not trust anybody on the outside. So we need to have our own news sources. We need to have our own radio stations. We need to have our own of everything. And this really gets into the evangelical subculture and I'm a cultural historian. So I spend a lot of time looking at evangelical culture and, and how this communicates these messages and evangelicals have such a, a kind of robust culture because, you know, Christian music, Christian film, things like that, because they don't trust the secular sources. Mm -hmm. And this is really uh, kind of the foundation, I think, for a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of this conspiratorial thinking that we're seeing today. It's a very small step to where we are now.
1: So you you had a a column that said, to understand all this, you just need to go through a Hobby Lobby store. (laughs) (laughs) What did you learn at Hobby Lobby?
0: Oh, yes. So uh, I love going to Hobby Lobby as a researcher. (laughs) My daughter was just asking me if I'm going to be banned after this last this last column that I I published in the Daily Beast this weekend. But yes, if you go to Hobby Lobby, uh, you will see that it's it's merchandise is extremely gendered. And so you can find, you know, the whole store is really for women. And you'll find a lot of, of items that are really geared towards, towards women. So, you know, coffee mugs with all I need is, you know, a little coffee and a whole lot of Jesus, or just give me lipstick, mascara, and Jesus, kind of, you know, lots of sparkles. The, you know, big princess section about beauty and more sparkles for girls. And, and then there's this, this section that is very clearly a masculine section in every Hobby Lobby. And that's where you're going to find fake resin longhorn skulls and lots of cowboy memorabilia and lots of fake, guns that you can put on your wall and six shooters, and you can find these kind of little welcome signs that offer not uh, offer not so thinly veiled threats, you know, like we don't call 911, you've got guns on instead. Um, you'll have, you know, thin blue line police flags and pro-military, pro-law enforcement. And so this is, uh, as, as I uh, write in this book too, this model of militant masculinity is overwhelmingly a white militant masculinity. And that comes through very clearly in the Hobby Lobby stores as well. So we kneel for the cross, stand for the flag, you know, not a fan of, of you know, Black Lives Matter protest movement. And, you know, Tim Tebow is their favorite football player, even though he's, you know, Long gone, but it's it's this culture of you know what is a proper Christian man? What what do proper Christians? What are their values? And it's a gun-toting masculinity. It's mean. It's threatening. And yeah, they kind of embrace it, and and so I, yeah, I just walked through a Hobby Lobby store with a camera, and I've been doing this for years. So there, this this goes back. This is a long standing tradition. Now you could just laugh at it, or just roll your eyes, or just say, you know, I'm not going to Hobby Lobby. But as a cultural historian, I, I kind of take this seriously. And you know, if if this is what Christianity is through the eyes of, say, the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby, and if this is what consumers are buying as Christianity, and, and many are, then I want to understand that, right? What are these values? And if those are the values that we're talking about, again, something like Donald Trump, it's not such a leap to get from that model of Christianity, Christian masculinity and femininity to what we see today. Again, it's not just hypocrisy. It's not a betrayal of these values. You have to understand what their values really are.
1: Interesting. Well, what do you hope to accomplish with the book? What would you like to see its impact be?
0: Well, my publisher really wanted to get it out before the 2020 election. uh, I'm actually not that confident that any book could have the power to change very many votes. Really, after I've spent years researching this, what I can say is that these values are deeply, deeply embedded in uh, conservative evangelical subculture. And so I don't think they can be quickly um, rooted out but i do think that history is the first step so many christians right believe that kind of the way things are are the is the way god made them to be so mm-hmm. tradition is just extremely powerful and so many of these ideas of say christian masculinity are packaged as quote unquote traditional and that, you know, God handed them down in, you know, the Garden of Eden, and then you jump to the 1960s and John Wayne, and then here we are. And this is traditional masculinity, but as a historian, that just does not hold up. You have historically and culturally all kinds of models of Christian manhood, many of which contradict this particular iteration. So as soon as you understand that, I think that frees us as Christians to say, um, well, there might be other ways to understand what it means to be a Christian man. And to understand the other cultural influences that led to this particularly white militant model being embraced. And if we don't maybe share all of those um, loyalties or values, maybe we want to undo that and rethink what it does mean to be a Christian man, what it does mean to be a Christian American. And so I think history is a really important first step that will not give us the answers, but I think it will help us to ask better questions. It will undo the the power of tradition, which masks just how recent this is, and it masks who, who made this happen. And for what purposes? There is a lot of power at play here. Who gains power through this model of masculinity and model Christianity and who loses out? And again, if you look at Christ, Christ's model in the, in the scriptures is a divestment of power, right? Christ is not claiming the power. Christ is like giving up that Mm -hmm. power. And that is the radical, radical teaching of the Christian gospel, I think. And, and so, you know, hopefully this book, will we'll kind of stand as a, as a testimony of, of what has happened historically that will then put people in a place to maybe have better conversations about what we would like to see going forward.
1: I think that's really good. I love how you said that. And, you know, it's, the purpose of this podcast and everything I'm doing is not, we're not trying to deconstruct white evangelicalism per se or point a finger at it or, or mock it. We're Actually, I, I think inviting people to ask better questions. I, I think that's a great thing that you said. Start asking why we believe this way, and is it right, and has it always been that way? And 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 really, for me, ultimately, invite people to be able to love people, to, to not be afraid of everybody around us, to not have to hate Muslims and gay people, and to actually be able to love our neighbors and love our enemies, which is what we're commanded by Jesus. And so I, I feel like people feel like I'm I'm mocking them and putting them down, and they may feel the same when they see the title of your book, but I think what we're inviting them to is that Jesus came to bring life to the full, and, and that may be the way we're being taught and our living is not abundant life. Exactly. Yeah, Good stuff. All right, so the book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Where can people pick it up, Kristen?
0: You should be able to get it at your favorite bookstore. And if they don't have it in stock, if you go to a local bookstore, they can order it and have it in just a couple of days. It's available pretty much uh, anywhere online that books are sold.
1: Okay. You like the local bookstore?
0: I, I'm always pushing local bookstores whenever I can.
1: We still have one small local bookstore here and, and one of the big chains. And I, I take my kids there every once in a while and tell them, oh, I love the bookstore. And I miss the video store too for what. I- <laughs> <laughs> I used to love to go to Blockbuster, but so go uh, support the local bookstore. That's great. All right, Kristen may thanks for being with us today and, and good luck with the book. Oh, thank
0: you so much.